What if I lost everything but God? Is he enough? So the life of a disciple is the life of dying to self. What does it mean to die to self? Dying to self can mean a lot of things, more than we have time to talk about in this context this morning, especially with our time constraint. But dying to self, we can think of it as placing the entirety of your life at the disposal of God. Saying to God, all of me, all of my life, everything about me is at your disposal. So dying to self doesn't necessarily mean giving up everything you like about your life or everything that you think you like about your life. It could mean those things. It could mean some of them. It could mean all of them, not necessarily any of them. Dying to self means dying to me being in the driver's seat of my life. Dying to me being in control. Dying to me being in charge. Dying to self means I say to God, all of me is at your disposal. You do with my life as you like. I trust you. And whatever you have for me is for my best. And so all of my life is at your disposal. Paul says the old me has died. And the new me is now completely at his disposal. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I die every day. That doesn't mean that Paul physically dies every day as though he's some sort of cat with 900 lives, but it means that he spiritually dies for him. Now, one day it will mean that he dies physically for him. And it might mean that for us. But it means that he dies every day to himself. Every day he looks to Christ and says, that is my treasure. You have full control. I yield to you all of the control of my life. Like uh, Jesus says to us in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. The cross, again, is not, it it may be this today, but the cross was not this piece of jewelry that we wear around our neck, as, as nice as that is, and shows our faith. But the cross is an instrument of execution. That's what Paul's readers heard when, when, or that's what uh, Luke's readers heard. When Jesus says, you take up your cross, they heard instrument of torture and suffering that leads to death. And so you take up that cross, you deny yourself, and you do this daily and you follow me. So again, this dying to self. Okay. So also we see that Paul says that as we die to ourself, a new life is planted within us or grown within us. Remember Jesus' words when he says that a seed must go into the ground and die. For if it doesn't, then life's not going to come from it. In the same sense, as we die to self, new life is grown within us. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. We are not driven to, I'm sorry, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The death of Jesus is at work in us, and the life of Jesus is at work in us and in you. So as we die to self, 
A new life is, is planted and grown and nurtured within us. And that is the new life of Christ that comes by way of the power of his resurrection. Lastly, take a look at Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. This passage tells us that those of us who share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings also share in his glory. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. So those who share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings will share in the glory of Christ. So we put all this together and we see that this really is the crux of Paul's teaching. The crux of Paul's teaching is this. The knowing of Jesus that Paul yearns so deeply for, that kind of knowing Jesus, only comes in the context of sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. This kind of knowing Jesus only comes in the context of sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, which we need the power of the resurrection in order to share those sufferings and do it without resenting God or resenting those who bring the suffering upon us or falling into bitterness. We need the power of the resurrection to suffer joyfully because suffering joyfully is the only way that we will come to this kind of knowledge of our Father and our Lord Jesus. Okay, This is, you, you recognize this I know, because this is a teaching that is nearly cover to cover in our Bibles. The teaching that the knowledge of God, the knowing of God, not the knowledge, but the knowledge of God only comes to those who suffer for Him. We see this in the life of Abraham. We see it in the life of Noah. We see it in the, in the life of Moses. We see it in David. We see it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who, who writes to us that book that we call Lamentations, which is a, a description of the most heinous and horrible suffering that the Bible has uh, uh, narrates to us. And in the very middle of the most horrible suffering that God's people have ever endured, Jeremiah writes this, his mercies are new every morning. In the middle of the most profound suffering, Jeremiah can say, but, but his mercies never stop being new. Or we could look to the life of David. We could look to the life of Isaiah. We would see it there. We can look to uh, Stephen. Stephen, whose skull is being cracked open like a walnut as the rocks are bouncing off the bones in his head, and he looks and sees Jesus standing for him. Or we can see this in in, uh, Lazarus, the story of Lazarus. Remember the story? So, John 11, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is on his deathbed, and we read those words that are... In, in some sense, so, still so very confusing when, when John tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, so he delayed three days. He loved them, 
So he didn't go. And then he comes and Lazarus, of course, is in in the grave. And we see the, the suffering that is taking place in the hearts of Mary and Martha. Mary, whom earlier in Luke's gospel, we were told she was the one who sat at Jesus' feet while Martha was preparing food. Mary won't even come out to see him. She's hurting so badly, she won't even meet Jesus. And Martha, we hear it in her voice as she accuses Jesus. Jesus, if you'd been here, if you'd been here. And then what happens? Before Lazarus is raised, there's that wonderful interchange between Jesus and Martha in which Martha declares, I believe you are Messiah. And I believe that he will be raised one day. And then Jesus says to her, Martha, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes upon me will never die, and though he does die, he will yet live again. Do you see the knowledge, the most intimate knowledge of of God is always given to man in the context of suffering. There's a lady by the name of Vanitha Riser. Uh, Her name's kind of a mouthful, uh, but she's a lady. She actually lives in Raleigh. Vanitha has an incredible story of suffering. And through this suffering, God has revealed Himself to her as the pattern of the Scriptures show in incredibly intimate ways. Her story goes like this. She was born in India. And she was diagnosed with polio. Polio is a disease that, for the most part, has been eradicated from humanity. But she was born in a third world country in poor uh, poor hospital conditions. And so this condition wasn't properly spotted. It wasn't properly diagnosed. It was misdiagnosed. And as a result of the misdiagnosis, the polio took over in her legs and she was crippled in her legs. Well, at, at two, her parents took her out of India, took her to England and then to Canada, eventually to America. And she underwent some 21 surgeries by her 13th birthday. She learned to walk at age seven. These surgeries were to try to correct her legs, to enable her to walk, which she, to this day, still walks with an incredibly visible, incredibly pronounced limp. Her legs are horribly scarred from all the, the surgeries and everything that had to be done to her legs, and so she endured a, an entire childhood of horrible bullying because of this. But then she eventually, at age 7, begins to walk, and by age 13, she's moving around acceptably well. Later on in life, she eventually marries and uh, endures four, con- four consecutive miscarriages before finally giving birth to a son. That son was diagnosed in utero with heart conditions, with a heart uh, issue, with a heart disease of some sort. And after birth, they, the, everything was going fine. The, the, the boy was coming along uh, remarkably well until at his two-month, there's a kind of a theme to that, his two-month checkup, when the regular doctor was out that day and a fill-in doctor misdiagnosed the condition and told the uh, Vanitha to take the boy off of all of his heart medications. He was dead two days later. So now she, after four miscarriages, she endures the death of a two-month-old. Later on, she has two daughters, and those daughters eventually grow to be teenagers. And at age 37, Vanitha was diagnosed. She, she had this, this incredible pain in her arms. 
And she was diagnosed with what's called post-polio syndrome, something I've never heard of, post-polio syndrome. The name kind of says, says it all. It, it can, it's sort of a recurrence of polio, uh, but not just in the legs, but in the whole body. And what post-polio syndrome does is it, it, it doesn't restrict the muscles or movement, but it, res- but it causes the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments to not heal themselves or rejuvenate themselves as ours do. You know, you're tired, go, go to bed, you get a good night's rest, and you feel better because your body has rejuvenated itself. Post-polio syndrome means your body doesn't do that anymore. And so it's described like this. It's described as, as uh, all of her movements are like a, a bank account from which she can withdraw, but no deposits are ever made. So every movement that she makes is shortening the time that she can move. And so she had to radically, radically reduce all her physical activity or she would have been a paraplegic within 10 years. So no more hobbies, no more, no more extraneous activity whatsoever. She eventually will be a paraplegic, but she's trying to delay it as much as possible by limiting every, every possible movement that she can because each movement that she makes, in essence, takes away a movement from her life. There's no cure. So after receiving this news, a short time later, her husband of 17 years unexpectedly left her. In fact, left for another state. Completely left their life altogether. So now she is this lady with legs that are still crippled from polio. Post-polio syndrome, that means that she cannot move any more than absolutely necessary. And she has two teenage daughters to raise by herself. So... After all this, a short time later, she's diagnosed with breast cancer. Her life has seen a lot of suffering. Well, she wrote a book about it. The book is called The Scars That Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Our Suffering. So I picked this book up. I read it in uh, preparation for the message here, thinking it would give me some, maybe an illustration I could use to, to kind of make this point. But I, I, was, really, I was really taken aback by the, by the depth, by the richness of what she had to say. She is a person who knows Christ intimately and all of it because of the suffering that she has endured. So a number of things I could have taken from her, from her book. I'm just going to take this, this one thing here. Benita says this. She, there's a time in her life when, of course, all these things I've described are incredibly hard. She, she came to faith at 13 But all these things that she endures are just incredibly, incredibly hard. She talks about a time in her life in which she screamed at the top of her lungs, God, why do you hate me so much? That sort of gives us a little bit of a picture of just what her life is like. So she's struggling with these things, and and there, there comes a time in which she decides to do something kind of continuing along the same thought of the Ebenezer Stones. You heard of the Ebenezer stones from the Old Testament. About three or four times, the Old Testament mentions Ebenezer stones. 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, I think is the most prominent place. But what the Ebenezer stones were, were they were stones that the Israelites would set aside. They would erect these sort of like a stone altar to commemorate a time of tremendous blessing. So that from that point on, they could look and see the stone and say, There's, there was a time in which God blessed us. God favored us in unusual ways called Ebenezer Stone. So she took that idea and she got a big bag of seashells and she was going to make 
Ebenezer stones from the seashells. And so she'd take these shells and she would write on them a time in her life that was particularly intimate with God, particularly encouraging in her faith. And she did this. And then she spent a lot of time just meditating, laid them out, made sort of a timeline, just spent a lot of time just just meditating on these times of great favor and great intimacy with God. And then the light came on. The light came on when she realized that every one of those shells corresponded perfectly with the times of deepest suffering and pain. And it just dawned on her. That's not coincidence. Every one of the times in her life in which her faith was the strongest, her connection with God was the most tangible, coincided perfectly with those times of greatest pain and rejection and suffering. Which is what exactly what the Scriptures teach us. That that is how... That is how God's people know Him intimately in the context of suffering well for Him. So the question that I would ask, we all see that in the Scriptures, we all affirm that, but the question we should probably ask is, why is that so? God can do anything, right? God can impart to you a knowledge of Himself any way He wants. You can experience a richness of relationship with God in whatever context He desires, right? Nothing is impossible for God. So why does God only connect with us in the deepest and most profound ways during times of suffering? And for me, the answer to that comes in thinking through those questions that we always like to ask ourselves. You know, the, the what if questions? Everybody asks these questions of yourself. Some of us can get carried away with these questions. What if my spouse leaves me? What if my children never come to faith? What if I lose my job? What if I fall and break my neck and I'm paralyzed? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, right? You know the questions. What will I do if? Now, those questions can paralyze you. But there's one question that you should ask. And in order to know God like Paul speaks of here, you must ask and you must answer correctly. And that question is this. What if I lost everything but God? Is He enough? What if everything were taken from me But God, is He enough? That's a hard question. That's an in-your-face question. Because the honest answer to that question sometimes can be very, very disturbing to us. What if you lost everything but God? Is He enough or not? Can you see that that's essentially what Paul is talking about here? As he says that I looked at all these other things, all these wonderful accomplishments, all these these incredible benefits that Paul had, 
And I looked at Jesus and I said, He outweighs them all. Can you see that that's essentially what Paul is saying? Paul is, in different words, Paul is saying, I asked myself the what if question and I answered it, absolutely he's enough. That's the question that's at the root, that's at the base, that's at the bottom of knowing God in this way. We will only know God in the way that Paul describes when we can, from our heart, say, what if God was all I had? Would He be enough? Yes, He would. So here's the thing. You can only ask yourself that question in a realistic sort of way, in a, in a meaningful way. You can only ask that question in the context of suffering. Do you understand that? That when life is going great, when everything's going along just fine, and you ask yourself that question, what if God were all I had? That, that, that's, not a, that's not a question you can really connect with in your heart when everything's going well for you. That's a question that has to be asked in the context of at least something not going real well. That's just the way our hearts work. That when everything is going along just fine, well, it's really hard to probe deeply into our heart and get the true honest answer to that when everything's fine. But when things are being taken from us, when the what-if questions are real, when the what-if questions aren't necessarily theoretical anymore, that's when our heart really gets an honest answer. That is when growth occurs. That is when relationship builds. Look at your own life and you will see the same thing. You will see, just like Vanitha saw, all the times of true intimate fellowship with God, all of them really came in times of trial or struggle or suffering or disappointment in some way. Because it is only through those situations that our heart can truly ask that question and answer it. We all are probably familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. Probably have heard that name. Another person who has suffered well for Christ as a teenager, dives off a cliff into the water, hits a rock just under the surface, and she's paralyzed from the neck down. It's been, uh, what, some like five decades now that she's been in a paraplegic chair. None of us can relate to that. None of us can know what life is like in a paraplegic chair. But she's lived now five, maybe six decades, because she's, I think, approaching 70. She's lived a long time in a paraplegic chair, and she's suffered really well for Christ. Here's what she said one time. She said this. She said, when she goes to heaven, when she gets there, she hopes that God will let her bring her chair. Not because she'll need it anymore. She won't. But she hopes that God will let her bring her chair so that she can go into His presence and point to it and say, thank you. Thank you for that. Because without that, I never would have known you like I know you. Oswald Chambers says that it is, it is not in spite of tribulation that the saint experiences the joy of the Lord. It is because of it. It is because of it. 
A Chinese Christian by the name of Brother Yoon writes this. He says that those who are in prison, you can substitute suffer. Those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel, it's not those who suffer. It's the person who suffers most is the one who never experiences his intimate fellowship. It's also been said that God's highest priority is not to get you to heaven, it's to get heaven in you, which is the same thing that we're talking about here. The Christian only comes to the knowledge that Paul speaks of in the context of suffering well for Christ and suffering with joy, which is only possible by the presence, by the experiencing, by the knowledge of the power of His resurrection. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.